0: God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks.
1: Guys, what's up? How we doing? Good. It's, uh, it's so fun to be here with you. It's good to see everybody's face and uh, to meet some new friends and see old friends. And uh, thanks, thanks for welcoming me in today. I'm, I'm really grateful for what God's doing here. Uh, I bring love to you guys from our downtown congregation and our other congregations spread out through OKC and Yukon. And uh, I just wanna bless what God's doing in Shawnee in your lives and through you guys. So I wanna take a second and pray for you. And then we're gonna dive in and do some really important work. Uh, the work we're gonna do today about the image of God is incredibly important. It's incredibly important for your worldview. It's important for your understanding of identity. It's important for you working through questions of ethics and how you're gonna relate to people and how you're gonna even resolve conflict and tension in your life. So I wanna pray for you. Please pray for me and we're gonna dive in. Father, thank you for Frontline Shawnee Thank you for the other churches in this city that are gathering right now to glorify Jesus. We pray that you would bless them. I thank you that the same spirit of the living God that hovered over the waters in Genesis is present in this room to meet us in the places where we need to be formed. So Holy Spirit, would you help me to serve my friends and would you help them to be eager and hungry and attentive and to have your word open and to have their hearts open. We pray that you would shape us and we pray that you would help us to understand what it means to be made in the image of God and how that points us to Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, can I give two quick shout outs as we dive in today? This would be a radically different sermon if it wasn't for a book and a friend, a book and a friend. And I want to give credit to whom credit is due. The book that was the most helpful is a book I've read a couple of times through the years that I would recommend to you guys. Uh, it's a good thing to read books that are a little bit challenging. Doing hard things is good for your soul. This is not the hardest book in the world, but it's not an easy book. It's called Image and Idolatry by a theologian named Richard Lentz. Not Carl Lentz, Richard Lentz. And uh, I would recommend that to you guys if you want to do more work. If you're curious, about the theme of the image of God and the theme of idolatry in the Bible. Get that book and read it. And then the second thing that was super helpful in prepping this sermon is one of our in-house resident theologians, a guy named Aaron Addison, who's one of our pastors at Frontline South. So I'm thankful for those guys. Uh, This sermon didn't get created in a vacuum. It got created as I consulted scripture, obviously first and foremost, but also the best of Christian tradition on being image bearers. Now, as we talk about the image of God, and we look at the image of God in Scripture, we're being introduced to one of the most important themes in the Bible. And even though the language is going to shift from, from image-bearing to idolatry in the, New, in the Old Testament— That language of image bearing is reintroduced with the coming of Jesus. And what we find is that what God tells us about being human beings in his image in Genesis 1 is deeply connected to what Jesus comes to restore and fulfill at the end of the Bible. So these things are unbelievably important. I want to give you two reasons. I could give you dozens, but two reasons why every person in this room should do work to wrestle with the image of God. The first reason is ethical, and the second reason is personal. The ethical reason that we should wrestle with the image of God is because we live in a really confusing moment in Western culture. We live in this moment where we're surrounded by echoes of an explicitly Christian past. Now I'm not in any way claiming that all people have been Christians in Western civilization or that all of Christendom was even a good thing. But there are certain gifts that God gave us in his word that have shaped the ethics of Western culture. And we're now in this really confusing moment where we want to hold on to many of the gifts that Christianity gave us while rejecting the giver in his word. And it gets really confusing. Every person in this room, I would assume, agrees that human beings are worthy of dignity and respect. That human rights exist. But the question we have to ask is, what makes it obvious that human rights do exist? In 1776, there was an edit from one of the earlier drafts of the Declaration of Independence into the version that we have today. And in the earlier draft, it was explicitly stated that the equality of all human beings was rooted and grounded in God and his revealed word. And Ben Franklin, with a couple of flicks of his pen, changed an explicit rooting of human dignity and equality in God for these words. We hold this truth to be self-evident that all human beings are equal. That all men are equal. Now, the thing I want you to pause and think about with me is, is it self-evident that all human beings are equal? Because it wasn't self-evident in the Greco-Roman world that all human beings were equal. The philosophers that did work that shaped their culture were just fine with relegating women to second-class status. In the pagan world, might made right, and the gods actually demanded the blood of conquered people. So is it self-evident that all human beings are equal and deserve human dignity and human rights? How do we answer some of the deepest questions? Like, why doesn't might make right? If you're strong, and by the way, most men are between 60 and 80% stronger in their upper body than women, why, why shouldn't you be a bully in your home? Why doesn't brute force resolve conflict? Why shouldn't you, if you have the means at your disposal to take what you want, whatever that is, from somebody that's weaker than you, what should restrain you? In fact, to go even deeper, why do the unborn deserve protection? Why do the elderly deserve protection? Why do prisoners deserve protection? Why should the people of God treat immigrants with dignity and respect? Why why isn't a person's value in a capitalistic society, why isn't a person's value connected to their productivity or to their earning power or to whether or not they're actually giving back to society? Why shouldn't we go back to the ancient days before the message of Jesus Christ was known in the earth when unwanted babies were left on trash piles? Or or why shouldn't we just accept the fact that sex-selective abortion is still a global epidemic that wipes out millions of unwanted baby girls before they're born? Why should we wrestle with things like just war? If a nation has the power to build an empire and crush those that get in its way, why shouldn't we do so? See, the the point I'm making is that there's all kinds of assumptions that point back to echoes of our Christian past. And maybe in this moment, for the most part, Americans agree that human beings are equal and deserve respect and dignity. But we're getting further and further away from the why. And it's so important for the people of God to understand that the answer to those questions and many other questions of human dignity and respect are explicitly connected to being made in the Imago Dei or the image of God. Now, the second reason is more personal. So you could take off your ethical hat for just a second. And let's think about identity. We live in a really confusing moment to try to answer what's at least the second most important question in life. Who am I? Who am I? How do we form an identity that gives meaning to our lives and names us in our lives? And there's all kinds of candidates that are trying to say that they can answer that deep question, who am I? We live in a moment where consumerism is no longer just another vice. Consumerism is in a lot of ways, sort of the philosophical underpinning for how we try to navigate the world. Even if you put live simply as a bumper sticker on your car, what you see at every turn everywhere we look is this idea that the way we answer the question, who am I, is through what we spend and through our experiences and through our vacations. And that all sounds well and good until you get all the things you think you need to be happy and you realize that you're still empty inside. Consumerism leaves us with a plastic sense of self. Or take expressive individualism. That's the idea that the most important value in the world is to be authentic, to be true to yourself. And the way that we form an identity as individuals is we create it. We're self-authors, and we have to create a self out of thin air, and then we have the exhausting burden of curating ourself that's constantly shifting and changing and presenting a self that we want to be accepted as to the world, usually via social media and our relationships. And the problem is, like, what if being true to yourself, what if following your own heart is really bad advice because your heart's fickle and shifts all the time? What, what if self-authoring a life out of thin air is exhausting and demands that you claim the prerogatives of a deity when you're just a human being who's often confused about who you are? What about a technological worldview that tries to answer questions about who we are through tech? And and that may not seem like something that's pervasive, but we keep reducing people to their utilitarian value and pretending, like one uh, feminist author put it, that human beings are just meat Legos that through pharmaceuticals and surgery and technological advancements can just shape ourselves into whatever we want to be. Forget the fact that if you even do like a quick cursory glance at human history for the last couple hundred years, what you're going to find is that tech keeps outpacing our wisdom to use it. So how do you figure out who you are and how do you define what the good life is and how do you actually answer this deep question, who am I and what gives meaning to my existence? What I want you to see is that the Bible is going to take us on a journey from Genesis chapter 1 in naming that human beings are made in the image of God to Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the Old Testament where the language of image bearing is completely replaced with the language of idolatry. And then it's gonna climax in the New Testament when in the fullness of time, the Son of God takes on flesh and in the, in the incarnation, the language of image bearing is cranked up to 11 and returned into the lexicon of the people of God. So we're gonna talk about what is it to be in the image of God and what did we lose at the fall and what does Jesus wanna offer the world through his death and through his resurrection. So take your Bible, come with me. Let's talk about what it means first of all, to be in the image of God. What do we learn in Genesis chapter one and two about the image and the original? Now I want you to pause here. You you don't have to be a full on history theology geek, but, but I think it's important to note that if you just do a survey of a lot of theologies that are trying to unpack what the image of God means, a lot of times Christian theologians will focus on human nature over human identity. Here's what that means. Human nature just refers to our faculties and our capacities as humans. So if you read a lot of systematic theologies or you study the image of God in a lot of Christian thought, what they try to say is, hey, to be in the image of God is related to capacities or human nature that points to God. To be in the image of God is your rationality, or it's your ability to work, or it's your relationality, or it's human linguistics and the ability to create language that helps shape meaning. And I I wanna say, like, thinking about human nature is really important, we should think about that. But Genesis chapter one and two is less concerned with human nature, and it's more concerned with human identity. That's not about faculty, that's about meaning and purpose. And what God is doing in his inspired word in Genesis chapter 1 in giving us the creation account of man and woman is it's actually answering different questions than what we tend to ask when it comes to imaging God. And the questions that it's pointing us to with unbelievable answers are about what does it mean to be a human? What, like, here's a really good question we should start to ask. What are people for? Because you're not gonna be able to answer the personal question, who am I, until you figure out the bigger question, what are people for? And to be an image bearer of God, what God's pointing to is three core things. There there are three strands that get woven into one rope that creates human dignity and worth. What does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, three things. Number one, it means to have a relationship with God. The first thing that's fundamental that shouldn't be assumed is that imaging God is found in relating to the original. And there's a shift in language in Genesis chapter 1:26, where God moves from speaking forth the inanimate objects of the cosmos to speaking forth Adam and Eve. And the language of God moves into the personal as God says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll talk more about sexuality and gender in two weeks. And verse 28 says that God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And pay attention to verse 29 because it sums up the personal language of creating man and woman. God said, behold, behold, I have given you. There's an I and there's a you. See, the the first thing The imaging God is connected to is that human beings were made to have a relationship with the original that we're called to reflect. This is personal language. It's the language of communion. And we're going to talk about human sexuality in a couple weeks, but even the picture of creating man and woman who are both human beings, but who are made to fit together in ways that correspond to differences is a picture It's a picture of standing in front of otherness and being drawn into that otherness for communion and for intimacy. The first thing that being a human being means is that we were made to relate to God as our highest good and to actually receive relationship with God not just as an obligation to reflect back to God the obedience he deserves. But even more, even more than a simple obligation, inanimate objects obey God. We were to obey God in intimate fellowship of communion. Human beings are made for relationship, made for relationship. And the thing that's crazy about this is if you look back and read Genesis one and two, you find that God is unbelievably generous with all the gifts that he gives Adam and Eve. He gives them everything that they need for flourishing. He gives them the five senses to enjoy creation. He gives them an abundance of food. He gives them the gift of marriage and sex. He gives them sunsets. He gives them human capacity to create, knowing that art and music and architecture and society is gonna flow out of their union with each other. He gives them everything that they could possibly dream of to enjoy. But here's the thing that makes the Garden of Eden so unbelievably enchanted and magical. Not the stuff that God gives them, not the gifts. The thing that makes Eden so special is that God is with them. His very presence is with them. God is their highest good. C.S. Lewis put it like this in Mere Christianity. God invented us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy on our own way without bothering about religion. God can't give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. The first thing you need to know about what people are for is that people are made for God. To enjoy God's good gifts in creation, but to never go to those good gifts to answer the deepest question about the good life, because the good life doesn't exist apart from God. God made us to be with Him. Now, the second thing that's obvious is that to be an image bearer is not just to relate to God, but it's to reflect God. God made humans as the pinnacle of His creation. And I want you to think about that for a minute in light of all the amazing things that God created. Think of the stars and the solar systems and mountains and forests and animals and creatures, all the things swarming in the deep. Think of the rocky mountains and the Pacific Ocean and all that glory and even think of the beings that he created that are called angels and their power and glory. All of those things God made are amazing and Romans chapter one tells us that all creation reflects the glory of God. Everywhere you look in the created world, God's fingerprints are there. Uh, last week, I was on a backcountry archery elk hunt in this really remote unit in Colorado, way up in the mountains, surrounded by snow-capped peaks and uh, moose. That one of them tried to trample me, and it was terrifying. And I started thinking about whether or not I had enough life insurance. And And in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, like that's the place that I just want to be as often as I can be and I'm just looking around and all day long I'm getting drawn to worship. Thank you God that you're big and you're powerful and you're mighty and you're glorious. But here's the thing that's crazy, man. All of those created things pale in comparison in their capacity to reflect God compared to human beings. The most ordinary average person that you ever run into is more reflective of God than the Pacific Ocean. The most amazing sunset that you're ever gonna see is less glorious than the most mediocre average person that you'll ever meet. Human beings were made to reflect God in ways that the rest of creation, even angels, don't. To be an image bearer means that God's beauty, his character, his wisdom, his love, his justice, his rationality, his relationality, even his triune nature gets reflected in human beings, we get to point to God. So being image bearers, one, it's to relate to God. Two, it's to reflect God. Three, it's to represent God. And this is where things get a little bit weird and interesting. God uses two words that kind of freak us out. He uses the language of subdue and dominion, subdue and dominion. And for a lot of us, we hear those two words and we think of like robber barons or we think of taking what we want. But those words actually are reflective of what it means to be an image bearer and it actually is God refuting the pagan ancient Near Eastern nations that surrounded Israel. Now, I want you to think with me for a second. In the ancient Near East, the term image of God was used frequently. It was used frequently. But it was always used to refer to the ruling monarch of a pagan nation. In ancient thought, a king ruled over a kingdom along alongside and on behalf of their gods. He stood as a bridge, if you will, between the transcendent gods and the people that he was called to rule. And as the image of God, a king represented the God that he worshipped in the way that he ruled and with that God's authority. Kings would often build statues of themselves and they would put them in a part of the kingdom that they ruled. The idea being the king was an image bearer of the gods. Now, the language of Genesis chapter one has striking similarities. And it's not God borrowing from the pagan nation. It's actually God pushing back against the worldview of the pagan nations. In Genesis chapter one, the whole cosmos is described as a sacred temple that God is building. And what God places in the temple is not an image of a God, and it's not that the only person that images God is gonna be a ruling monarch. What God does is created all the cosmos to be full of his glory, and then he puts man and woman, the first two human beings, in that amazing garden temple to image God. God is saying something radical. He's saying it's not the ruling monarch that reflects God and rules on behalf of God. It will be every single man and woman. Human beings were made to be kings and queens that ruled under God, not a tyrannical rule that destroys culture and crushes creation, but a rule that would represent God, that would bring God's beauty and God's justice and God's creativity to bear so that all of creation would be full of God's glory. He gave them unbelievable responsibility to oversee creation as vice regents under him. And all human beings since the beginning, all human beings have been created in these three ways to image God. Created for relationship. Created to represent God. And created to to actually reflect his glory in what we do. Now I want you to pause here for just a second because... Last week, we talked about creation being liturgical, being about worship, that God is creating this, this amazing temple known as the cosmos. He's filling it with his glory. It's all about worship. Now, what I want you to get is that those three things, those three things that make up being image bearers, those three things give you the most robust handle on what worship is supposed to be that you could possibly Imagine. What we just did a few minutes ago is what a lot of people think worship is. And, and don't get me wrong, it's part of worship. Singing three and a half songs is amazing. And I love getting to hear your guys' voices. And these prayers that we pray and these songs that we sing every single Sunday, this is certainly worship. It's training for worship. But here's what you have to understand. If that is your only definition of worship, your definition of worship is anemic and pathetic because it only applies to an hour and 15 minutes once a week. In the beginning, God creates man and woman as worshiping beings who will worship God in relationship, in reflection, and through their representation of him in how they create, how they work, how they build, and how they play which means God's vision in Genesis chapter one would be that every single day, all seven days of the week, it's all infused with worship as we image God. Now, that makes the next move really sobering because something really crazy happens and it happens in Genesis chapter nine. The positive, beautiful language of image bearing gets completely replaced in the Old Testament with the language of idolatry. The Bible moves from talking about bearing the image of God to human beings building graven images that aren't gods, that aren't gods. And in 2 weeks we're going to talk more about the fall, but let me just mention what happens in essence. In the fall, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was holding out on them and to really fulfill their identity, to really have the good life, to really experience fullness, beauty, and depth, they had to turn away from God and turn to God's creation to answer those deepest questions. And in that moment, here's what happens, man's relationship with God gets fractured when we try to trade creator for creation. Man's reflection of God still exists, human beings are still image bearers of God, but that reflection gets marred and twisted. It's almost like a mirror that was made to point up at God and to shine God's light at the world. The mirror gets kicked upside down and it points at the dirt. And the work of representing God, of leading and building as a king and a queen, taking dominion, building society, filling creation with the glory of God, That work becomes misrepresentation where the way that we build brings evil. And we find by the time we get to Noah that all of society, instead of reflecting the goodness of God, the kings and queens that God created to rule over the earth under his authority, as they reject God's authority, they they do become tyrants. Abuse and evil fills the entire world. And what happens in Genesis is the language shifts because at the heart of the horrible exchange where Adam and Eve traded creator for creation, what happened is that human beings didn't stop being worshipers, we just started worshiping really dumb stuff. We traded a life of worshiping the the triune God that created us for his glory, to be with him, we created, we traded all of that for relationship with creation that can't satisfy. And the thing that's so ironic and crazy is in idolatry, human beings actually bow down to things that they ontologically outrank. We start worshiping things that we are created to actually use. We start bowing to things that can't hear our prayers, that can't actually meet us, that can't save us and can't rescue. And here's the thing that's crazy. We become like what we worship. The idea was that Adam and Eve would grow in reflecting the glory of God as they knew him and as they, as they plumbed the depths of the glory of the Godhead, that they would look at God and be more like God and reflect more of the beauty of God. The tragedy of idolatry is that the prophets tell us again and again in the Old Testament, if you bow down to mute idols, you will become mute. If you give your heart to images made of wood and gold and stone, you trade a heart that was created to be soft and fleshy, your heart's going to be cold and made of stone. If you worship a God that can't hear your prayers, your ears are going to get stopped up to the requests of the poor and the needy. And what happens throughout the course of the Old Testament, starting with the golden calf, is that we see idolatry becomes the default position of the human heart instead of the worship of God. David Foster Wallace was a writer. He wrote a, wrote some really weird novels, really long novels, and he wrote some great essays. He wasn't a believer in Jesus when he took his life, but he understood something about human nature. Here's how he puts it: If you worship money and things, if there will you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Paul in Romans chapter one says that the default position of the human heart is that we've exchanged the glory of the God that created us for images of creation. And now we go to things that God created to be gifts to be our gods. Money and power and approval and career and pleasure and food And drink. The things we go to for our ultimate satisfaction, that's what we're worshiping. Where we go to answer the question, who am I, that's what we worship. The source of our greatest comfort, what we can't live without, that's what we worship. Christopher Wright says, the things that entice us, the things we fear, the things we trust, the things we need, these are our These are our gods. And as John Calvin so simply put it, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're constantly creating gods that can't hear and can't save. And the story of the Old Testament is that when we worship gods that aren't God, we worship things that bind us, that possess us, and that devour us. The problem with the gods is they demand sacrifices. Worship money and eventually you will have to give the God of money human sacrifices, usually your marriage and your kids. Worship sex, the human sacrifice will be the women that are being objectified in the porn industry, eventually your own body. Worship pleasure and hedonism, that God will demand your health. Worship the approval of man and those gods will demand that you have an increasingly isolated life, lonely without real friendship, without real connection. And the thing that can happen in a room like this is we can immediately start thinking, well, I mean, I worship Jesus, I gave my life to Jesus. But I'll never forget years ago being in India and talking to this Hindu family that I was friends with and having them show me their cabinet of their household gods. They took me into their living room and they had this cabinet, it looked like a big dresser and they opened up the cabinet and there were all kinds of images of the various Hindu deities. Ganesh was there and other gods were there and off to the side, connected to all their other gods, there was a crucifix, Jesus hanging on a cross. And I was really interested, kind of freaked out, kind of shocked and I asked them, "Well, tell me about that. And they started talking about how Ganesh does this for them if they'll give sacrifices and various other gods do these things for them. And they heard about Jesus and they thought that Jesus might be helpful too. So they added Jesus to the pantheon of all their gods. Now friends, listen, that's not just a Southern Hemisphere thing. That, that's a human nature thing. We add Jesus to the other gods because we think sometimes he might be helpful. And what I want you to see in the fullness of time, God doesn't leave us bound to idols that can't hear and can't save. In the fullness of time, a better Adam comes. We're the first Adam traded relationship with God for stuff. We're the first Adam traded reflecting God for reflecting the dirt. We're the first Adam traded representing God for actually ruling as a tyrant. The second Adam shows up, Jesus Christ, And the language of image-bearing returns to the Bible. Think about these words. These are amazing. This is 2 Corinthians chapter four. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those that are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus shows up in the fullness of time and the image of God actually finds its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate perfection in Jesus as Jesus relates to his father, perfectly reflects his father, and actually represents his father in the way that he brings life and expands the kingdom. Jesus relates to his father as the ultimate image bearer. He says, I only do what I see my father doing, and I only say what I hear my father saying. And Jesus constantly is retreating from the busyness of life to just enjoy fellowship with his father because his father is as high as good. Jesus perfectly reflects his father. Let, let me kind of blow your mind a little bit. The Bible would tell you if you want to know and see God, which... I would think we would want to know and see God. If there is a God, we should want to know and see him. The Bible tells us you don't have to go on a vision quest. You don't have to go to a sweat lodge. You don't have to take DMT. If you want to know and see God, you just have to look at Jesus. Jesus perfectly manifests the glory of the Father. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And and Jesus, man, the way that he represents his Father in expanding his kingdom is mind-blowing. When Jesus encounters sickness, he brings healing. When Jesus encounters sorrow, he brings joy. Jesus ruins perfectly good funerals. He rescues a wedding by turning water into wine as a picture of gladness in the kingdom of God. He casts out demons, he calms storms. All of that is Jesus actually stepping in as the true and rightful king who represents his father's rule perfectly in the way that he rules. And here's what's wild. Salvation in Jesus Christ is indeed having our sins forgiven because Jesus paid the price on the cross. It is that, but it's not just that. Part of God forgiving our sins through Jesus is that Jesus came to completely restore the image of God in us. And union with Jesus, being in Jesus means that the image of God gets restored as we trust in Jesus and it will one day be perfectly and completely restored as we see him face to face. Think about these verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 2 Corinthians 3.28 says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And at the end of history... When Jesus returns, what the Bible tells us is that beholding and becoming finds its zenith. It finds its perfection as we get to see Jesus with unveiled face and we behold the glory of God in Christ and we're transformed where we're completely free from sin for all eternity. And I don't know what the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like, but I know it's not going to be like a super boring skit in a Simpsons episode where we float around on clouds and play harps all day I know that what we're going to enjoy for all eternity is relationship and reflecting and representing God and our job today if you're a follower of Jesus our job today is to keep doing the ongoing work of beholding Jesus in worship and turning away from idols that can't save keep pulling them down because they keep popping up in our lives. In the last seven days, you and me have worshiped stuff that can't hear, can't answer, can't save, can't heal, can't name. Every person in this room. And if you think that you haven't, I promise you, you have. You need to do some work. And the work of the people of God, week in and week out, is to actually turn away from idols, and to turn back to the living God in relationship so that we can a little bit more reflect him, represent him, and actually lead in such a way that we bring his goodness to that which he's given us responsibility over. So with that in mind, will you stand with me?